Hey, this is David from the Piecing It Together podcast, a podcast about movies and the movies that inspire them. For over four years, each week, a guest and I take a look at a new movie through the lens of what other movies we think were either an influence or connect in some other way. It's a fun, unique way to discuss films that leads to a great list of other movies to check out that either explore the same themes and ideas or maybe utilize similar filmmaking techniques. Including special episodes in our side series that twist the format, we've done over 200 episodes, so there's bound to be one on a film you've been thinking about and want to dig deeper into. So check us out on all the major podcasting apps and at piecingpod.com. Hey, it's Dan. Before we begin, I want to tell you about another podcast from Movie Maker. It's called Movie Maker Interviews, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Great interviews with people who make movies. Guests range from people like Charlie Kaufman and Werner Herzog to the newest up-and-coming indie filmmakers. If you love movies, you'll love this podcast, Movie Maker Interviews. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you got this podcast from. In the early 1970s, over 20 years into the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, conditions between the two superpowers began to thaw out a bit. It was the policy known as detente, And throughout the 1970s, both countries put their differences aside and attempted to play nice with each other. In 1972, U.S. President Richard Nixon became the first president to ever visit Moscow. Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev would return the favor the following year. The first of the SALT treaties, drafted to limit the growing number of nuclear weapons, was signed in 1975. And perhaps... Most amazing of all was the joint space adventure known as the Apollo-Soyuz mission. It was the final mission in the Apollo space program. The world watched as American astronauts took off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, to meet up with Soviet cosmonauts high above the heavens. Literally thousands of ribbons. Eight, seven, six, five, four. We should have ignition very soon. We have it. Have it. And I believe we have a commit, and we're moving. Lift off. We're clear of the tower. Clear of the tower. It's on our way. Soviet cosmonauts welcomed the U.S. astronauts, and the two had a symbolic handshake to signify that the countries were letting bygones be bygones. They were going to agree to disagree. It was a perfect showing of what detente was supposed to be. Speaking in Minneapolis this afternoon, Secretary of State Kissinger praised the joint space mission as a symbol of progress in American-Soviet relations. We will speak up for our beliefs with vigor and without self-deception. We consider detente a means to regulate a competitive relationship. In 1975, the Apollo-Soyuz mission was big news. There was massive coverage of the space flight, the spacecraft docking, and the symbolic handshake. Everything went pretty much according to plan. And somewhere in that historic event is a glossed-over fact. While in space, the astronauts received a communication from actress Elizabeth Taylor. Liz was already a Hollywood legend by 1975, but still, her communicating with astronauts in space was not a normal thing. Producer Paul Maslansky was in the room with Liz when she communicated with them. I was called into the uh, office of the head of the studio and Arshansky and myself and Elizabeth Taylor sitting at the big boardroom. 
and we had a communication with the Salyus Apollo mission. And we were able to speak to the cosmonauts and the astronauts. Uh, when I say when I say we, Elizabeth did, because that was the, the whole thing, you know. It was a big number for Elizabeth to speak to the cosmonauts and the astronauts on that Apollo mission. Uh, and that was dramatic and wonderful. We all felt that we were part of something that was quite unique. But there was a very specific reason that Elizabeth Taylor was allowed to speak with the Apollo-Soyuz mission. While the men in space were practicing the spirit of detente on the grandest stage achievable, Elizabeth Taylor was doing her own version of detente here on Earth. She was starring in the first U.S.-Soviet film production, a whimsical children's movie that would appeal to everyone. In it, Taylor would, for the first and only time, play four roles. A movie that would feature American stars in front of the camera and have Soviet technicians applying their craft behind the scenes. The intention was noble. A cinematic act of detente featuring the best of what both countries could do. But what both sides of this artistic endeavor did not realize was just how different the worlds they came from really were. And the task of making two hours of cinematic entertainment would be far more difficult than a space docking and a handshake. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're exploring this now seemingly forgotten movie that attempted to bring two countries together. Welcome to the industry. Clara Reese had little to do with the industry. She was born in Romania and moved to the United States when she was a teenager, and she spoke several languages. By 1969, she was a middle-aged business executive living in Cleveland, Ohio. One of her main tasks was to negotiate business deals between the companies she worked for, Tower International Corp., and the Soviet Union. She was a frequent traveler to the Soviet Union, and by the late 60s, she had observed a number of social and political changes going on within the country. She thought this was exciting. And in 1969, she had an idea to bring the United States and the Soviet Union together. Her first brush with the industry was with a movie called The Fixer. It was shot in Hungary, and Clara was hired as a go-between for the Hollywood production and the then-communist Hungarian government. It's during this production that Clara meets producer Edward Lewis. Lewis was mainly serving as a producer for movies directed by John Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer, for example, directed The Fixer. And Clara and Edward Lewis hit it off and both thought that a United States-Soviet Union co-produced picture would be a grand idea. And, to make it even better, it just so happened that Edward Lewis owned the rights to what they thought would be the perfect movie to make. The Blue Bird. The Blue Bird was originally a play written by Belgian playwright Maurice Maeterlinck and first premiered in Moscow in 1908. It's a Wizard of Oz-esque fantasy about two children, a brother and sister, looking for the Blue Bird of Happiness. Along the way, they encounter fairies and witches and Father Time and household items that have come to life like bread and milk. Seriously. The Bluebird had already been adapted as a movie several times, as a silent film in 1918, and in 1940 as a vehicle for Shirley Temple. In the Soviet Union, an animated version of The Bluebird was released in 1970. The thought was that audiences in both the United States and the Soviet Union 
would be familiar with the source material. And as an apolitical story with a simple message done as a musical that could appeal to the whole family, it would be seemingly a near-ideal choice. Getting the ball rolling on the Bluebird would take a couple of years. It's only after the policy of detente started in 1971 did things start to slowly take shape. But eventually, a deal was struck between producer Edward Lewis and 20th Century Fox on the U.S. side and Lenfilm on the Soviet side. Fox would provide big Hollywood stars. Lenfilm would provide the locations, the accommodations, and the crew. But the director would be an American, George Cukor. And on paper, Cukor is a great choice for something like The Blue Bird. He had experience directing musicals, winning an Oscar for My Fair Lady. He had worked with every major Hollywood starlet and was greatly respected throughout the industry. He even spent a couple of weeks working on a children's musical fantasy once before. It's called The Wizard of Oz. He helped create the look of those iconic characters. But the one thing that should be considered here when it comes to George Cukor is that he was 75 years old during the filming of The Blue Bird. He did help line up an impressive cast. Elizabeth Taylor would take on four roles, and Ava Gardner, Cicely Tyson, Will Greer, James Coco, and Jane Fonda would also sign on. On the Soviet side were actors Margarita Terakova, Oleg Popov, along with ballet dancers from the Kirov Ballet Company. I'm playing the lead children, the real main characters of the were six-year-old British actress Patsy Kensett and nine-year-old American actor Todd Lookinland, though both would have a birthday during the production. But don't let their ages fool you. Patsy and Todd were both experienced child actors at this point. I had just come off of doing a series um, that was called, it was an ABC series called The New Land. And that's what I was doing just right before it got cast on The Bluebird. Prior to that, I've been doing TV episodes and commercials. And I, I knew what was going on. I knew what it was like to be on a film set and to be part of a production, for sure. I wasn't, I wasn't brand new by any means. That's Todd Lookinland. And for Todd, getting cast in The Bluebird was a relatively normal experience, except for one thing. That, that whole process was pretty normal up until the point where I got cast. They said, okay, you got the job. You know, of course, it was a big deal. And then um, as they started hashing out the details, um, my mom, who had, you know, who had been um, a stage mom for many years up to this point, was curious to know who the welfare worker was going to be that the production took. And welfare worker was another name for the uh, stage teacher. And the, the stage teacher is also the person who is in charge of making sure that the, the, the production follows the child labor laws, right? They surprisingly have, a, have a, a lot of power on the set. Production said, oh, we're not taking, we're filming this in Russia. We don't have to follow those rules, essentially, right? We're, we're not going to be in California, so um, we're not bringing a teacher, welfare worker, blah, blah, blah. So my mom said, well, we're not going then because I can't pull my kid out of school for an entire year, right? And they said, okay, fine, we'll find somebody else. So then they started the casting process all over again, and they came back, and QCOR wanted me to do the job. And um, so they said, okay, we'll bring a welfare worker. <laughs> and for Todd, he was made aware that this was not just another picture 
or TV show that he was working on. It was meant to be something special. I mean, you gotta remember, I was nine when I got cast, right? So this sort of like conceptual detente between the Cold War powers was, was something that wasn't in my brain. You know, all that was explained to me and it was, and 20th, they made a big deal out of this. And I don't know how, honestly, I don't know how deep this goes into what sort of State Department influence was involved in this. But they made a big deal. They made a big deal in the in the press and letting everybody know that this was this big cultural exchange that was going to happen between the two countries. So that was all explained to me. It was definitely talked about. And when we got to Russia, it was definitely a big deal. The Russians really made a big deal about they were really, really into the show, showmanship of, you know, making sure there's a delegation here, that they have both the, the, the hammer and sickle flag and the stars and stripes, and, you know, that there's important people. They, they were always making, making a big deal out of the fact that there's these two countries uh, together. Once the cast and crew were assembled in Leningrad, it was clear this was not going to be a typical Hollywood production experience. For one, they were starting in January, right when winter is in full swing. We got to Leningrad in January, and it was dark and cold. Now, I'm a, I'm a kid. I've lived in Southern California my whole life, and all of a sudden we're in this very bizarre place that doesn't seem like it's caught up to modern time, and everything looks looks like behind and it's dark for most of the day it's like the sun you know kind of pokes up for like four hours a day then disappears and it's cold and it was just it was really um shocking it was it was not a very modern city at the time for sure and i should point out for those of you who might not know this but leningrad is now known as saint petersburg the shooting plan for the Bluebird was 100 days to be spread out over less than five months. The budget was originally set at $2.4 million, half of which came from the Soviet side. But problems started pretty quickly. Communication became a major issue between the Soviets and the Americans. Interpreters were needed for everything, and it bogged down the production. As many as 20 interpreters were on set at the same time. Another problem was the outdated equipment being used. While producer Edward Lewis had promised George Cukor he would have the best equipment for his crew to use, what ended up being there was outdated equipment from the Soviet side. That whole, like, transforms over to the making of the movie, too. Like, techno- technically, they were, I don't, I don't know what era you could, you could uh, say they were in. Like, the 20s? I mean, their, their equipment was just, like, production just, like didn't happen because they didn't have the modern filmmaking tools to make a make a movie. Oh, it was a it was a disaster. They couldn't even they they were you know they'd get to film for dailies and and you know the production the production was like looking at the dailies going what is this like this looks terrible. So they started get this down. They started sending the film to London to be processed and then they'd send it back. So dailies were always like two days behind, you know, think about, think about how that screws up a production schedule. You know, when you can't look at the film you shot for two days, right. 
it's just a little thing, but, but, um, you know, it's indicative of the fact that their film stock, their cameras, their processing technology, it was just, you know, it was really antiquated. Not only was the equipment out of date, but some members of the crew were not entirely up to the task. Some of the sets that were being built ended up being built a little too literally. The movie starts out in this sort of like cottage, right? This is the first, the first setup where we started filming. And the Russian art department built this thing like a cottage on this soundstage. Like the walls didn't come apart, right? They built the second floor, like they built it with a second floor. Like you always build a stage, like the stairs go up to nowhere, right? And then, because you don't want to carry the camera and, and everything up and down and, and all the stuff. It's just totally impractical. You make the walls so you can pull them out so the camera can get here or there or like whatever. You know, they didn't even conceptually understand that. It was like, it was like they built a, a stage for a, a play or something. You know, it was just all totally stationary. So Qcore comes in. He's like, what the hell is going, what is this? <laughs> How do we work with this? You know? So it was, uh, there was a lot of head scratching, I think, at the beginning. One notable example of this was Jonas Grishus, a well-regarded cinematographer in the Soviet Union who was assigned to the Blue Bird. But it was eventually realized that Grishus was lacking the proper experience for this picture. He had never filmed in color before. Additionally, he had never filmed a person of color prior to this and could not light actress Cicely Tyson properly. Food also became a major issue. Elizabeth Taylor became ill and would continue to work despite having a full-on flush red face. Again, the inexperience of Jonas Grishus shooting with color was evident as he couldn't light her red face properly. Eventually, Taylor would head off to London and be diagnosed with dysentery. James Coco was hospitalized and needed a gallbladder operation. His role as the family dog come to life had to be recast. British actor George Cole would replace him. The Western cast was all holed up at the same hotel, the Hotel Leningrad, and most of them ate at the same hotel restaurant. We're not going to survive eating at this restaurant. There just, you know, it, there just wasn't hardly anything there. And so we started figuring out what was nearby where we could go and buy our own food, right? Mm-hmm. Over the bridge and down the street, there was a, a bread store and there was like there was no grocery store, right? You had to go into these different stores. So like you go in one store and get oranges and you go in another store and get some bread. And so we, we started figuring out, you know, where to go get our own stuff. And, and we had this suite in the hotel where we kind of set up this makeshift. Well, my mom did set up this sort of like makeshift deal. And, and we would try to have our own sort of like milk and cereal and yogurt and stuff like that. And then not too long after that production started, doing this thing where we would literally put in like a grocery store order. And I'm not sure how often they did this. It was like once every two weeks or something. And they would, they would bring stuff in from London. You know, they would, they would send somebody over to, to buy, you know, Cheerios or whatever for, for you to have. By March, things weren't improving. And by now the word was getting out. The American press was reporting all of the problems on the set. Jane Fonda told Newsweek that the Soviet crew would work only until the end of the designated workday. It doesn't matter what scene you're in the middle of. At 530, the plug gets pulled. News of the bad Soviet food 
outdated equipment, communication troubles, a rising budget, and every other detail was getting out to every Hollywood gossip columnist. Before James Coco became ill and left, he was asked by a reporter how long he'd been in the Soviet Union. Oh, about five years, he replied, and then added that he would never do another film there. Things weren't looking good, and they seemed to be only getting worse. And then the production shut down. I don't really know all the, the like the inside business details of what happened, but production collapsed. I mean, it just fell apart. And right about that time, Liz got really sick as well. Here's the other thing, man. We couldn't even... Liz got sick with dysentery, right? From drinking water, right? We were like boiling our water to have drinking water, right? And and this is in their like fanciest hotel in Leningrad, right? So Liv got really, really sick and she went to London and the production just fell apart. And I remember that there was a sense of, we got to get out of here. There was a sort of like exodus. And we actually, we got on a train to Helsinki and then uh, a plane from Helsinki to however, whatever the hours we went back to California. And during that time, there was a, there was this sense of, if we stay here, there's, there's nothing, the production's gone, right? There's nobody here to, to look after us. Cause I mean, that's what part of the producer's job when you're on location is to look after every cast and crew. Right. And they were, it just fell apart. They were gone. So it was, I, I remember this sense, this feeling of, we got to get out of here. And it was sort of like, let's go pack up, let's go. And I'm not really sure why they, they decided to reboot the whole thing. Why 20th century Fox didn't just pull the plug then, but they wanted to complete this project. 20th century Fox needed to retool things. Originally the bluebird was scheduled for a Christmas 1975 release and that was not going to be possible at the pace the production was going. Plus, Ava Gardner had quit the picture altogether and had gone to her home in London. Changes needed to be made, and they were. Alan Ladd Jr., the head of 20th Century Fox, made a number of changes. Edward Lewis, the producer who helped originate the project with Clara Reese, was moved off the production. He'd get an executive producer credit when it was all said and done. And Ladd brought in a new man to write the ship. Producer... Paul Manslansky took over the production duties. I just got on a, I got on a plane and went off to Leningrad. That is Paul Manslansky. Larry said, look, we're having, uh, we're making the, the very first co-production between the Soviets and uh, East-West co-production. We have a, a terrific producer of it who put it together, Eddie Lewis, who was John Frankenheimer's producer for many of, of Frankenheimer's pictures. In any event, Eddie Lewis was doing the picture, and he had a, a group over there in uh, Leningrad. And after about, I think it was four or six weeks of production, uh, things had bogged down considerably, apparently. The Soviets were very unhappy with the uh, production side of the Western side, the American side of production. And Jimmy Coco uh, had gotten ill and left the picture, and uh, Ava Gardner went back to 
London and Elizabeth was unhappy apparently and she went back to London and the whole thing was collapsing. And Paul had a reputation for straightening out troubled productions and had filmed in the Soviet Union before. And Laddie uh, called me and one weekend said, look, uh, the, uh, the Russians know you because I had been involved in another film in the 60s called The Red Tent. The Red Tent from 1969 was an Italian-Soviet co-production. It was the first time the Soviets had a co-production with anyone from the West, and it filmed in Estonia. So Paul gets right to work, and the first thing he does is change the cinematographer. I decided very early in the game, after seeing some of the material, that photography was not really up to the standard. They had a Soviet cameraman on the picture, a very distinguished one. But um, since there were so many English and American stars on the picture and the Soviet cameraman didn't speak any English, uh, that was a bit difficult also for George, George Cukor, to relate to the cameraman. I, I discovered that George Cukor uh, allowed the cameraman to do quite a few of the setups while George concentrated on the performances of the artists. And Paul doesn't just bring in any cinematographer. He gets Freddie Young, the acclaimed British cinematographer who had over 100 credits to his name by 1975. Even better, when Young arrived in Leningrad, he brought his own camera equipment. He had worked on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, a movie that pretended to be shot in Russia, though it was shot in Spain, and on Bowani Junction, a picture directed by George Cukor and starring Ava Gardner. And speaking of Ava Gardner, there was the matter of getting her back on set. She had agreed to do The Bluebird almost as a favor to George Cukor. There wouldn't be a big payday, but he did promise her some luxury accommodations and she would only have to shoot for three weeks. Well, none of that turned out to be accurate. And getting her back on set was no minor task. First of all, Ava left the picture and was in London when I went over to start the picture again. She quit the picture, literally went back to London. Jimmy Coco left the picture. He went back to the States. We had to replace him. But Ava, Ava was important to this picture because she had already been on film for a bit as had Coco, but not as much as Ava. So I had to go back to London and convince Ava to come back to Russia. And it was really a tough, tough shot. It really was tough to get her back. She just hated it. She just didn't like it at all. She felt very uncomfortable. And when she went back, um, she did her work always had this wonderful uh, flask <laughs> on the And, you know, it was mineral water, but it wasn't, you know. Anyway, Ava was terrific. She ultimately was really terrific. She had the, the riest sense of humor. She really did. She was, as a jazz musician, you know, you always think of people being hip or not hip of being aware and not aware. Ava was really aware. Wow. Ava was able to suss out someone who's bullshitting her in five seconds. 
and, and had a voice that could let you know about it, you know. Paul made the rounds with the entire cast, getting everyone back on board and back on set, making sure that the Blue Bird could be finished. The very first day I got there, I decided what I had to do was introduce myself to the cast. So I knocked on the doors and knocked on Elizabeth's door. She heard about the, the producer being replaced and all uh, the production manager being replaced. And, and I introduced myself and she invited me in. And by the end of that evening, uh, with uh, a bit to drink and, and some caviar and leanies and things like that that I had sent up from restaurant we were friends we became friends and i said to elizabeth i said elizabeth the word is from george uh, cooker that you are late to set every day and i knew that she has this is what is kind of traditional with elizabeth it was uh, for many of her pictures i heard this that she doesn't show up for her call re uh, regularly and you have to uh, compensate for it and give her an early call, a late call, and you know, futz around with it, you know, etc. So anyway, I said, Elizabeth, I, George has said, it's, it's very frustrating for him, very frustrating sometimes that you don't meet your call. She's, and she looked at me and gave me a hug and says, don't you worry about it. Don't you worry about it. This is a new world. We're going to do things differently, et cetera, et cetera. We pledge fidelity, et cetera. You know, we were on the piss. We had been drinking all night. The next day rolls around, and what do you think happens? On Monday, uh, she had a call at 7 o'clock. And, uh, of course, the on set was uh, 9 o'clock. And... Uh, George was on set at nine, and at seven o'clock she wasn't. I was at the studio at seven, and she hadn't shown up. Seven thirty, no show. Eight o'clock, no show. So I know we're in shit because makeup and hair, with the, the role that she had, was quite elaborate, and I knew we were, were going to be in a bit of an issue here. So uh, comes time for her to be on set, and she's not there. And Cukor said, if she's not here on set in 30 minutes, uh, I'm going back to the hotel, which been a, would have fucked us for the day, you know. I knew. And, and the last thing I wanted on my very first day was sort of trying to run the show. Um, for that to happen would be a catastrophe. I called the hotel and uh, they got her out to makeup and hair and finally down and it's about 10 minutes before the deadline and George is, is and she's still not on set and George is getting restless. Everyone's restless. First, I sent the assistant director down and he comes up and said, they won't let me in the dressing room. I, and I sent the production manager down and he said, no, they, they, they're not being nice down <laughs> Now, Paul, who is fairly unhappy himself at this point, has to go and check on Liz. And just a little bit of a warning, the audio here is not great. So I go down and I pound on the door, and the door opens a crack, and it was one of uh, Elizabeth's 
people. She had four or five people with all nice people, but, you know, all beckoning to Elizabeth's call. And I said, let me in. And I go in the, and there she's sitting at, and she's almost ready. Uh, she has her uh, makeup on, it appears, and the hair has been done, and just some adjustments being done to her costume. And she looks at me, she looks at me through the mirror. And as I walk in the door, and she gives me this harsh glance, so different than the night before. And she gets up, and in a very dramatic gesture, she she approaches me, and the room turns to ice, you know. Who knows what's going to happen now? She comes up to me, and she takes my head in both hands, and turns my head, and blows in my ear, right? And <laughs> just, you know, I melt. This is Elizabeth Taylor with those eyes, with extraordinary eyes, and blows in my ear. And she said, you sweet thing. I'll be there in just a moment. So in case you missed it, Liz blows in Paul's ear and says, you sweet thing, I'll be there in a minute. And it was the last time she was late to set. After that, it was a matter of taking care of the things that really mattered. I guess the biggest problem with the men's with the the, the toilets, they, they were they were just dreadful. I mean, they've changed, thank God, because I've been over there since. But they, I mean, they were just these contempt. They were awful. They were just dreadful. And then you know when we went. <laughs> No toilet paper. I had to bring toilet paper from Finland on a weekly. <laughs> Seems to me it was almost on a monthly basis. It was, or a weekly basis. I would ship over toilet paper. And of course, there was the food. Well, food was a big issue. Uh, on set, uh, on set, we didn't have what we normally have in the states and in England, uh, the normal craft service. You know, where you have a, a table with all sorts of things that people go and snack. So that was a problem because the artists all always expected something like that. That was a minor, minor issue. And I, I solved that by going to the American consulate and introducing myself there and befriending one of the uh, people that ran the commissary there. And I managed to get some wonderful things for the for the unit, you know, to always have the, which the Russians also really appreciated greatly. And over the next few months, Paul found himself traveling quite a bit to get things for the production. And the other thing was that the living allowance was was uh, that had been arranged for the artists was not enough for them to travel over to Finland, for example, on a weekend to get some good food because that was the thing in those days was a short hop over into Helsinki. You flew over into Helsinki, and, and that's where you, you, everything Western was available. And with Paul Maslansky running things, the Bluebird started to get better. And he, t- he, he turned that thing around and made it, made it a lot more easy to just, you know, day-to-day be there. So were you enjoying yourself at that point? Yeah. Yeah. It became, it became fun, actually. At that, at that second second half, there was a there was a separate studio that we went out to, and I can't remember the name of it. It was sort of out in the 
sort of outside the city and we ended up shooting a lot out there as well. And it was, it was fun because we were outside all the time and there was like a, a lake there that you go swimming in and there was like old, old destroyed Soviet tanks that were out there that I guess maybe they used in a movie or something. I mean, it was just like a lot more loose and fun. And we were able to run around and it was a little more fun to be a kid. And to help give you an idea of just how difficult and how slowly the production was moving for the Bluebird, this is former child actor Stephen Warner. He tried out for the lead in the Bluebird. And, uh, and it was decided that I was too small. And like Todd Lookinland and Patsy Kensett, Stephen had a lot of experience by age nine. He had been the lead in 1974's The Little Prince. So the producers wanted him in the picture somewhere. He wound up with a small role in a big scene. And even though it's a small part, Stephen is made aware that this is intended to be an important film. My agent said to me, um, I mean, you have to remember, I was a little kid and being a little kid, it, it wasn't really, you know, I, I didn't really look at it in the same way as I would do now. And he said to me, he said, you, you have to do things that are important. And this film is actually a very important film. Um, so we want you to do this. And I said, OK. And I think all I was really concerned about was, you know, do I have to go to the dentist again? Are they going to give me lots more injections again? And and the answer for that was no. Uh, but you should have a lot more fun with this one because there's lots of children in this film. So that was it was kind of sold to me like that. And uh, the next thing I know, there we are at Heathrow Airport getting on a plane uh, and off we went to Russia. Off to the Soviet Union to shoot his one scene. One scene that is full of children. And things, as you already know, do not run smoothly. For the scene that I was in, The Land of the Future, that took three weeks to do that. It took three weeks just for that one scene? Yeah, that took three weeks. So that's one scene, three weeks. Now, to be fair, though, not all of the three weeks was spent on set. Stephen did have to do a recording session and table reads first. And he had to meet the leads, Todd and Patsy. I remember it very, very clearly because the first time I ever met them both, my mum was my chaperone and she told me, she said, oh, you're going to meet an English girl called Patsy, you know, and an American boy called Todd. They've been there already for a long time and you'll probably get to meet them, you know, the, the day that we arrive or maybe the next day. I said, okay. And I remember us all arriving with all, that, all of our luggage in the hotel lobby and there was a big uh, staircase and I remember Patsy and Todd flying down the stairs and literally hugging all of us because, you know, and they were kind of introducing themselves and they were so excited because there were other Western kids to talk to. And this is probably not a surprise that nine-year-old Stephen has no sense of what things were like in the Soviet Union. Not really. I didn't really understand what they meant about the Iron Curtain. I didn't really understand what they meant. I mean, to me, Russia was just another country um, where they spoke a language that I really didn't understand. So I, I didn't really understand the significance of it. Um, not really until I was there. And I realized then um, how different Russia really was and how they didn't really seem to have much, you know, that they couldn't get the things that we could get, which I found very strange. I, I didn't understand it. But it quickly becomes clear once he gets there. On the flight on the way out, one of my suitcases went missing. It ended up going to Japan. And so some of my clothes I didn't have. 
And so the production company gave my mum some money to take me out to buy me some clothes. And she was horrified <laughs> because she's like, because I, I can't make him wear these things. They're awful. Uh, I didn't have any underwear. And Patsy's mum said, oh, it's okay. He's only a little boy. He can wear Patsy's pants. It doesn't matter, you know. And I was like, like now I think about it, I think it's quite funny. Yes. Uh, and at the time, I didn't think about it at all. I was just like, okay, yeah, whatever. But, yeah, I remember my mum, like, buying underwear for me in Leningrad and then saying, well, you can't wear these. This is awful. You know, I'm not going to put my kid in this. And other than whatever was going on with Russian underwear, there were the typical food issues. I mean, for example, I, I know that Patsy's mum, Marge, she used to fly backwards and forwards between the UK and, and Russia, and she used to bring back uh, a suitcase full of denim and deodorant and soap and basically give it to all of the dresses and the maids in the hotel and anyone like that just, just to you know give them something because they couldn't get things like that there. But the thing that really stood out when I spoke with Stephen was his assessment of the slow filming process. Well, for me, it was a film set as a film set, you know, and I, 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 I see it as a just that. It's, it's a place where I have to work and do all those things that I'm taught to do and say the words I'm taught to do. But the thing about this particular project that really blew my mind was how many people there were on the set because there was the scene that I'm in, there are literally hundreds of children in that scene. And that for me was something I wasn't used to. I was only ever used to working in scenes where there was only a few people. And all of a sudden to be in this massive group of people, that was unusual. And also as well, everybody was speaking Russian and I didn't understand uh, what they were saying. So there was translators everywhere. And the only people that I could really understand were the kids that I flew out with. So we all became very, very close very, very quickly, um, purely because of the language thing. It was, it was very difficult because every time anything was said to anyone, it, it had to be repeated, I don't know how many times, in both English and Russian. But this was incredibly labor intensive. And it was a, a lot of you know discussions between the American production side of the team and the Russian production side of the team about how this is going to be done, where that, how it's going to be, you know, and it, it was just so much hanging around. It was just unbelievable. If we ever, you know, did one take in a day, it was quite amazing. I mean, I felt really sorry for Patsy because she was out in Russia for the best part of a year. It's likely out of everyone there, it's maybe Cicely Tyson who had the worst experience among the cast. Yeah, I don't think she was very happy to be there. And she, you know, you know how I, uh, I said a minute ago, like sometimes when you're in these extreme situations, it can it can bring everybody together and sort of make the unit stronger. She wasn't, she was, she wasn't part of that. She, she, I don't think she was happy at all to be there and wasn't just, you know, consequently wasn't the sunniest of people to be around. She also, I remember this vividly, she had to wear these horrible contacts in her eyes for her character and um, to make them look like cat eyes. And they were really problematic and painful. And she couldn't, and she also had to wear these like super long, uh, like fake nails because of her character, like claws. And, and so she couldn't get these contacts out of her eyes. So she would have an assistant trying to get these, pull these things out of her eyes and 
it was just always like painful and awful and uncomfortable. And she would, you know, it, she was never in a good mood. The production of The Bluebird ended up going at least twice as long as anticipated. And that $2.4 million budget wound up being somewhere over $8 million. But about eight months after filming began, and 10 months after George Cukor first arrived in Leningrad, production finally wrapped. A Christmas 1975 release was not going to happen. It would have to wait until April of 1976 to hit American theaters. But before that could happen, a premiere needed to take place. And while, yes, most movie premieres take place in Hollywood, this was something different. The uniting of two countries for the first time in cinema? That gets to premiere at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., that was a big deal. Really, really interesting as far as film premieres go because it was it was way more of a sort of like political, like a government spectacle than a film spectacle. You know, there was there was speeches made by government people and not film people. It was it was bizarre. It was kind of weird. They had this extraordinary Kennedy Center uh, showing of the picture because the Iranian ambassador was in love with Elizabeth, I think, you know, he, 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 he was a big movie fan. And um, so they had this incredible uh, affair at the Kennedy Center for the picture and the whole diplomatic community was invited. And I, I went there with my wife at the time and my two little kids. And it was a great occasion in Washington. I remember that. But I remember sitting through, I remember sitting through the picture, quite embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He said quite embarrassed. The movie did not turn out as well as they had hoped. We, we showed the picture in New York to the critics at, a, uh, uh, at, little, at the Carnegie. Remember the little the Carnegie Theater? And Rex Reed was there and, and asked Rex Reed to come. And Rex Reed didn't know me. <laughs> and we're outside the Carnegie, and I just want to hear what people are talking about. And I'm sort of behind Rex Reed. And he, he said something like, what a piece of <laughs> You know, something like that. And I got, yeah, I got so upset. I went to him. I said, you goddammit. My name is Paul Mislaski. I produced this picture. And that's a terrible thing to say. The work that went into George Cuba. Blah, 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 blah. I remember I got so upset I wanted to punch him out. But I was just defending all that effort that we all had. Because it's not that bad a movie. It really isn't. It's just, it just sort of sits, <laughs> it sort of sits there. I knew the story. I knew what you know, they were trying to say the, the bluebird of happiness, you know, you, you, it's, in, it's in your backyard, right? It's very sort of like, like almost like cliche kind of thing. You don't have to go looking for happiness. It's here in your backyard, right? That's the sort of like the bottom line, right? And so I, I knew all that. I knew what they were trying to say. But even as a kid, you, you like I looked at that and it's hard not to see the sort of what's the right word. <laughs> I don't want to talk terribly badly about it, but, but it doesn't really... You know, the, the sets and everything, it, it all looks a little, like, not professional, not not top-notch, you know what I mean? And you expect to see top-notch from a top-notch company with a top-notch crew and, and stuff, but 
you know, some of the sets look just like terrible and the dubbing of the dialogue for the Russian actors didn't work right. It, it just, it all kind of just, it's a little uncomfortable. And those tepid responses they got at the premieres were pretty much the standard reaction the Bluebird would receive. Critics were not kind and audiences stayed away. Yeah, and I don't know if, I don't know if this is just like, you know, me or this is just like working on enough things and you get sort of this you know attitude of like oh well that one wasn't so great you know i mean (laughs) it's just it's just the just the way it is you know i i didn't have maybe this is my personality i'm i'm pretty low-key but maybe you know my expectations were like okay all right well moving on you know we'll do something else this this one didn't turn out so great we knew it was difficult all the way along and this is what happens when it's that difficult earlier i said that george kukor on paper seemed like a great choice for a project like this after all he's one of the all-time greats and his filmography speaks for itself the women a star is born adam's rib born yesterday and the philadelphia story are just a few of his triumphs seriously go look at that filmography it's stellar But those were all in the 40s and 50s. And his last major success, My Fair Lady, was in 1964. That's 10 years prior to him getting on a plane to Leningrad. So there was a belief that hiring Kukor had been a mistake, that he had been too old to handle the rigors of shooting in the Soviet Union. After all, he was 75 at the time filming was done. Here's what Todd had to say about working with George Kukor. It's hard for me to sometimes separate what I remember and what I know about him now because what I know about him now is like he's just one of Hollywood's greatest directors of all time and so when I think back on that show and I'm a kid I don't know that you know people tell you that oh this is a big this big deal Hollywood director it's like okay whatever I'm 10 I don't care about movies from the 40s right so he was very intense he was definitely in charge he was definitely a actor's director in that he didn't worry about the technical stuff too much like he didn't want to, he didn't want to talk to Freddie Young too much about the shots. He just wanted to talk to the actors. He was very intense. And this is just a, this is just like a, a visual example. And it's something that I just remember as a, as a kid thinking he always had the script in his hands and it was always like rolled up. Right. He was always clenched between his hands, like rolled up and he would get down and, you know, get down and lean down right in your face and he'd be holding this, this script that was like rolled up real tight in his hands and he'd be talking to you very intense. He always put his finger up in your face, very intense. And I just remember thinking as a kid, you're never going to be able to open that script again. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just like formed into a cylinder. Never, it's never usable except for you just to hang on to it. I don't think George, I don't think he was entirely thrilled about, you know, the fact that the two youngest members of the cast were the ones who were in every single scene. You know, he loved... He loved the, he loved the ladies, the stars, you know, he loved Liz Taylor. He loved Ava Gardner. That's who he wanted to be working with. Not so much, not so much a couple of little kids, but he was that kind of old Hollywood, very, very professional and 
and a lot of decorum. You, you know what I mean? The manners were important. Personally, I feel blaming Kukor for the failure of the Bluebird is a bit unfair. Whoever was calling action on set would have still had to deal with interpreters, outdated equipment, and sick cast members. He had altruistic intentions going into it, and he really bought into the idea of a cinematic detente. Kukor always had nice things to say about his time filming The Bluebird. The Russians couldn't understand the snide things that were said about the production. I found them, from a human point of view, extremely kind and cooperative in every way. The picture started off rather awkwardly, but then it got its own tempo, its own momentum. We were pioneering, and it's bound to be easier for the next people who go over. These days, the picture, which fed gossip columnist headlines and featured an all-star cast and was an international co-production with the Soviet Union, is barely remembered. If you want to watch it, you'll need a region-free DVD player because there's no current U.S. release for it, which does make sense considering people's reactions to the film. I don't remember ever seeing the movie and it not going over without a sense of total confusion at the end. <laughs> like, what, like, what is that we just watched? You know, Everybody was certainly polite and enthusiastic with their applause, but I don't think anybody ever understood what happened on the screen when they see that movie. I saw it not too long ago. I think it was last year I ran it for my grandson. Uh, my grandson now is 17. He said, I want to see the picture you, you made in, in Ru- the pictures you made in Russia. And I ran the bluebird for him and he was not particularly impressed. But <laughs> I never got to see it. Uh, they never released it in the UK. So we, we never saw it. However, did manage to get hold of a DVD copy. It's not in Russian. The cover's in Russian, but I, I have actually seen it. It's nothing really like I thought it was going to be. Uh, the story was explained to me. What I, I think I was thinking it was going to be more like a Disney film because I only, I, I only saw certain parts when I was there. You know, I, I, as I said, like I, I only saw the two sets, Land of the Future and Land of Luxury. I, I didn't really see any of the other stuff. So, you know, I, I never saw like the cottage or anything like that. So I, I couldn't really imagine that. How old were you when you finally saw it? Probably about 40. But there is at least one person out there who has love for the blue bird. My name is Yola Le Cainec. I live in France, more precisely in Rennes, near the Mont Saint-Michel and Saint-Malo. I am born in 1971. And as far as Yola was concerned, seeing the blue bird was not simply watching a movie and you end up liking it. It's a movie that deeply affects her. It was an absolute revelation. I haven't read at that time the play of my Terling, and I discovered with an emphatic enthusiasm all the magic world of the bluebird, thanks the wonderful heart of Cukor. I loved to see Cukor friends, Elizabeth Taylor and Ava Gardner playing such amusing parts, light and pleasure. Jane Fonda was my favorite. When she appeared as night, it was a surprise for me. I could never imagine she could play like that. The phantasm, furious and tender at the same time. The cat pilot, embodied by the marvelous Cicely Tyson, is great too in this register. I felt very happy at the end of the movie. Like the sick young girl, I was no more sick. 
My happiness came from the fact that I understood I was not alone believing in the source of all the things around us. It is not mysticism or metaphysic. It is the understanding that the human being is not alone on behalf. Things take care of him and he must, in return, take care of them. This movie belongs to what we can call the care cinema, a cinema for well-being and well-thinking. And Yola has seen The Bluebird a lot. In fact, I think it's safe to say she's probably seen it more than anyone. I saw it a hundred times, probably more. I showed it to other people, young and not young people. Some of them don't like The Bluebird, but they say my friends, of course, if they don't like it. But perhaps I can say one thing. I learned something about people from the way they talk about the bluebird, a link they have with the unreality, uh, the imaginary, and also the childhood. Indeed, when I showed the bluebird to children, it was not the same reaction. My son saw it when he was very young, just some scenes, and after when he was four, all the movie. He saw it today more than ten times, I think. Like any good mother, she's been able to pass on her love for the bluebird to her son. I love this movie. When I was younger, it was for me a horror movie. Today, I am 11 years old and I see the bluebird differently. For me, it's no more a story than a horror show. He has a point there. Comparing the bluebird to a horror show makes perfect sense to me. The movie does have that 70s creepy kids film thing going on. Kind of like Willy Wonka in that way. I should also point out that while he has not seen the movie 100 times like his mother, he has seen it at least 10 times. So, if nothing else, Todd Lookinland and Paul Menslansky and the rest of the Bluebird cast and crew can take some solace in the fact that their work did deeply affect a couple of people out there. This movie belongs to what we can call the care cinema. The cinema for well-being and well-thinking. I should point out that we're only getting to hear from the Westerners on this podcast. I did attempt to get at least one person from the Russian side, but had no luck. I'm sure they would have their own unique outlook on the experience of having all these people from Hollywood show up in their part of the world. And while, yes, it's a forgotten movie, and it was a very difficult shoot for a lot of people, but Todd Lookinland and Paul Meslansky both have an incredibly positive outlook on their time on the Bluebird set. I tell you, one of the great adventures in my life, the relationship between the cast and the Russian crew was, was just spectacular. It really was. Even though language was a difficulty, everyone did their best. They realized, most everybody realized, that they were doing something that was quite unique, that was a first. I just have to reiterate, yeah. Liz Taylor was the best ever. Jane Fonda was fantastic. Ava Gardner was a, a dream. All these, all these people who you could think, oh, that might be a, a diva personality to work with, wrong. They were just the greatest. They were so great. And it's interesting to be a grown-up now and... You know, if I see Liz Taylor on TV, like like she was on uh, Counter Hot Tin Roof on TCM the other night, mm-hmm. and I can look at that person and I go, I remember you as just being the nicest, best person. And that's worth the entire experience. 
that, you know, yeah. I, I tell you what, man, the experience of doing that, like going over that adventure, getting, you know, sort of like involved in the, in the Russian culture and the Russian people and just sort of like making our way for eight months through living in the Soviet Union, that adventure was, was great. It was fantastic. And I look back on that with a sense of happiness and gratitude. That's a life adventure that is very unique and was very fun and very cool. The movie, not so great. The adventure was well worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry, presented by Movie Maker. For information about what's going on in movies or how to make them yourself, visit moviemaker.com. This episode was written, edited, and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my guests, who were all so great to speak with. Stephen Warner, Paul Mislansky, who let me ask him all kinds of questions about any movie that he had made. And of course, Todd Lookinland. Todd, by the way, moved behind the camera and has worked on a number of big hits you've probably seen, like The Nightmare Before Christmas. And if you are a huge Nightmare Before Christmas fan, then you should definitely check out Todd's own podcast. It's called The We Know Jack Show, where a different crew member from The Nightmare Before Christmas gets interviewed by Todd about their experiences making that iconic film. Check it out at WeKnowJackShow.com, or you can probably find it wherever you found this podcast. Also, thanks to Yola and her son. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her last name, so I will not attempt to do it. And Bob Harkins played George Kukor. Bob, by the way, is a, another podcaster, host of the great documentary series Raised Sports, and he is the proprietor of the documentary podcast network Story Hanger. All the shows there are winners, and I say this because I have listened to all of them, so go check out Story Hanger. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, then please leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or wherever you can. It really does make a difference in helping people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do that. Send an email to dan at moviemaker.com. You can also tweet at me at theindustry13. Follow on Instagram, that's industry underscore podcast. And on Facebook, it's at theindustrypod. We have a new website up. It's pretty much the same address, industrypodcast.org. And you can leave a voicemail if you like. There is a blue microphone icon in the bottom right corner. If you click it, you can go ahead and feel free to share your thoughts with me. And if someone actually does this, I may use it in an episode. So you have been warned. You can now also buy me a coffee there as well. That's right. Make a small donation to help keep me caffeinated enough to make another episode. And last, for those of you who are into this sort of thing, show notes to all of the sources that were used in this episode can be found on the website, industrypodcast.org. Go ahead and check the blog section for the Bluebird show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode. My name is Dan Delgado, and I'll be back again soon with another seemingly forgotten story from the industry. Thank you.